0: Uh, we got some fourth and fifth graders in here. You guys have some fights with your siblings? Yeah. All right. I just wanted to pull you guys in real quick. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, I have a, a brother who's six years older than me, and, and we got in some fights, but six years older than me means that I lost all of those fights. <laughs> Uh, It means, though, I learned the dynamic and then learned I could pick on him to a point. I could cross the line. I could hurt him some way, somehow, and then I could push the eject button. Uh, Kids, I'm not telling you this is a good thing. This is what I did. My eject button was, mom, mom, mom. That's what it was. So I'd rat till my brother, then run to her, screaming, like, Chris is trying to get me. She's like, Chris. And I'm like, yeah, Chris. (laughs) That's what you get. You're six years old, man. Uh, but we, we, we had uh, a lot of fights. Uh, I love my brother. We're very different. I love uh, my brother. But, but this text makes us think about brotherly fights. Makes us think how we're going to fight with one another. How are you going to fight? Not, not, not just sticking with your siblings. How are you going to stick with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? How are you going to deal with one another? How are you going to confront one another? How are you going to continue to live with one another, a.k.a. endure with one another. And so we got a lot in this story, almost all of chapter 8. Let's get straight to it. Judges 8, if you don't have a Bible, please grab one, open it up. I want you to see. See this. Judges 8. The men of Ephraim said to him, why, to Gideon, why have you done this to us, not calling us when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they argued with him Violently, So he said to them, what have I done now compared to you? Is not the gleaning of Ephraim better than the great harvest of Ebizer? God handed over to you and Zeb, the two princes of Midian. What was I able to do compared to you? When he said this, their anger against him subsided. Now, if you haven't been with us, we just typically pick up a book of the Bible and walk through it. We're in Judges. Quick recap of the story of Judges. The story of Judges is is in the time after Moses and Joshua but before the first king in Israel Saul and God commands them to to clear out and inhabit the land that he promised them but they disobey and get in a cycle of worshiping other gods getting punished by God by oppression from other countries and then God them crying out and God sending a deliverer a judge a rescuer and that's the cycle and we're caught up in the cycle now a few times in, and this is Gideon's cycle. Gideon was called during the Midianite oppressive reign. And when we found him a few chapters ago, he's cowering in a wine press, threshing wheat with no wind. And the angel of the Lord tells him, the Lord is with you, Gideon, valiant warrior. And then God makes him a valiant warrior. What God speaks, God does and he makes them avoid water and then God whittles down this 30,000 army to 300 people to, to show them who saves them then he called the Ephraimites to help as these commanders were running away they caught them. but now the Ephraimites confront Gideon because like why didn't you call us at the beginning what wh- where were we and that uh, it's funny because you've got the people that r- walked away afraid at the beginning right when God said if you're scared go home and they're like that's us we're out and now you got these people that like why didn't you call us so some people just in this mission of following Jesus together some of us are like why didn't you call us and some of us are like why did you call us you called me too late into this or you called me too early Gideon though he sounds like he's running for office right He's, he's very smooth very smooth this Gideon he minimizes his own role he flatters them on their grapes you catch that what he's saying is the gleanings what he's saying is the leftovers of our uh, the leftovers of your grapes are better than a full harvest of our grapes but what's the comparison here buddy like the the gleanings the leftovers that people pick up of your grapes is, is, is it's, it's the best it's, it's, it's 1926 Merlot, and, and, and we're serving 7-Eleven kangaroo bottle, whatever that is. <laughs> he acknowledges God, has given him the real trophies. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't drink it. You guys do. <laughs> I'm drinking of the gleanings of the good stuff. He acknowledges God has given them the real trophies, Orban Zeb. He minimizes his role again at the end, kind of doubling down with more intensity. He's very smooth and he seems humble, right? He seems humble, how he portrays it. He's like, no, no, you guys, not me, you guys, not me. But a big color on this story is that Ephraim, if you don't know, the original readers would have known. Ephraim is strong. Militarily and economically, they're strong. And why would I say that? Well, because his interactions here are very different than the people that are not stronger than him later. So it seems humble, but what is really what happening with, with Gideon? But he does subside their anger. He does relax their resentment. How? Well, the, the wisdom of God. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away anger. That's wisdom from God. A gentle answer. They come at him violently. Like, that, that's why the narrator puts on that, because you're not sure of how they're asking it. How are they asking it? Why didn't you confront us, buddy? Are they asking it nicely? No, violently. They're in his face. Why? A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Just put that in your pocket for tomorrow. But, but strangely, Gideon doesn't respond with what? What I think he should be doesn't make any like he just appeals to them and, and the dynamic between them and they're better he doesn't say anything about what God told them. why not and in this he he uses the word Elohim instead of Yahweh why why use the more general term for God and not the covenantal name of God here and he doesn't he doesn't explain he's been enveloped with the spirit of God He doesn't explain God's desire to win the battle with the least human, the least humans possible. It seems right. He's like, how many? Can it still look like you're an actual army, but you know I win? <laughs> Three hundred. That's about the number. And we can't answer these questions, but way- raising them are helpful. Why? Because the story unfolds. And Gideon is going to transform again. He, he went from a fearful baby of the family into a valiant warrior with God, with him. But now he's going to go from this valiant war to taking the next role into his own hands. Verse four, Gideon and the 300 men came to Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. He said to the men of Succoth, please give some loaves of bread to the troops under my command because they are exhausted. For I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So now we just find out that the princes that were caught what weren't, weren't the kings. Oh, now he's pursuing the kings. Okay, so there's more guys he's pursuing now. But the princes of Succoth asked, are Ziba and Samuna now in your hands that we should give bread to your army? <laughs> uh, like, have you caught them? We'll help you after you've won the victory. We won't help you to victory. Gideon replied very well. When the Lord has handed even Zamun over to me, I will tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. He went from there to Peniel and asked the same thing from them. They answered just as other men. He told them, when I return safely, I will tear down this tower. And so I was thinking about this, that the headline of this scene would be The Loaf of Barley Can't Get Any Bread. Because if you remember, he, 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 the pagan had the dream about him being the round loaf of barley that's going to roll into the Midianic camp and blow up the camp. And now this loaf of barley, Gideon, can't get any loaves from anyone for him or his soldiers. And he's angry about it. He's hungry and angry. Kids, you guys know what that's like? Yeah. Wow. I didn't even finish the question. He is currently, I see So he threatens to whip the elders of Succoth and he threatens to tar- tear down the refuge of Penil. Verse 10, now Zeba and Zamuna were in Karkar and with them were an army of about 15,000 men. So now we get some numbers. So there's 15,000 men left of the entire army of the people of the east. Those who had been killed were 120,000 armed Men, a better translation uh, would be swordsmen or men with the sword, which would then take you back to how did those men die? Do you remember? The Lord caused the panic and they pulled out a sword and killed themselves, killed one another in the camp, in the darkness. Gideon traveled on the caravan route east of Nobah and Jagbaha, and attacked their army while the army felt secure even Zalmanah fled and he pursued them he captured these two kings of Median and routed the entire army Gideon son of Joash returned from the battle by the ascent of Harries he captured a youth alright so sneakily he went through this kind of back road right the trade routes wins army now he's traveling back captures youth from the men of Succoth. he interrogates them the youth wrote down for him the names of the 77 leaders and elders of Succoth so he does a little prep work this was no empty threat He's, he's ready to fully execute it. He goes back and finds out who are those elders that I said I was going to whip with thorns. Then he went to the men of Succoth and said, here are our and Samuna. I brought them now. They're in my hand. He taunted me about them, saying, our Zeba and Zemluna, now in your power that we should give bread to your exhausted men. So he took the elders of the city and he took some thorns and briars from the wilderness and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. Some of your translations say uh, uh, he taught them a lesson, right? <laughs> uh, that's a euphemism, kids. You guys ever been taught a lesson? <laughs> I got taught a lot when I was a kid. Uh, they, that literally means threshed. That's what it means. It literally means to be threshed. Which is helpful because it brings you back to where we met Gideon. He also tore down the tower of pinole and killed the men of the city. So it doesn't mean taught him less, it means he threshed them like wheat with switches made of desert thorns and briars, Just like you thresh the wheat, he threshes them. The fearful boy is now an angry man. From beating wheat in a rind press to now beating his elders or the elders within his nation. Now, the judge who's been called by God is treating fellow Israelites like Canaanites, like the enemy, meaning in this story, the one sent to deliver them ends up delivering them to death. He's a general out of control, not bound by the law, not bound by civility, not bound by national loyalty not, not even bound by strength like the strength of the Ephraimites. And if that's what you desire for freedom, if that's what you mean by freedom, if that's what you think the New Testament speaks of freedom, then you have a problem. Because when you're not bound by anything, it means your desires, your plans, your emotions become your God. Which means you bind yourself with yourself. You can say you're free, but you've bound yourself by yourself. Galatians says, no, freedom is this. You're free not to use it on your self-interest, on your own desires, not to serve yourself, but to serve others in love. That's the paradox of Jesus. (laughs) That I'm bound by Jesus, so I'm the freest. Did you hear me? That's the paradox of Jesus, that when you're bound to Jesus, you're actually the freest. The idea that you're the freest when you're not bound to anything is insane. Now, I'm bound by Jesus, so I'm free. Free to live, free to enjoy, free to love others, free to see God. Free not to serve myself, but to serve others, to serve him, and to live with radiant joy. But not for Gideon. He takes this freedom and he moves from being motivated by God to now being motivated by vengeance and anger and being disrespected. So in this story, when, when God gives you favor, when God gives you strength, when God gives you influence, how will you use it for others? Will you twist your favor to manipulate them? Will you use your strength to force them? Will you use your influence to get what you want? Or because you're free in Christ so you can serve others, will you use your favor to bless others? Use your strength to protect and build up others. Use your influence to point others to Jesus. How will you use it? For Gideon, when he finds success, when he finds this role, he then begins to be enamored with success, love, success. Now, two points of thinking of this story from the view of the New Testament. First, quick instruction about the elders and second's a little bit longer on the tearing down of towers. But number one, how do you correct elders in the church? Ask this guy, I don't wanna get whipped by priors, okay? I've had enough switches in my life. uh, I don't need another one. But how? It's a a good question because clearly it's not that. So what is it? Well, first I need to make sense that the elders of the city would be the kind of ruling, leading uh, men of the city, making decisions, caring for the city. And then in the New Testament, you have have elders, which are the, the men of the church that care for, serve. What do they do? They shepherd and oversee. They pastor, shepherd, and they a bishop which is oversee so when you get to new testament it's a big deal to be an elder a pastor an overseer all the same thing paul says this to timothy though when telling timothy and ephesus to to uh, uh replicate himself to develop elders to install elders he tells him this don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses why is that helpful? Well, number one, because pastors, leaders in general are usually lightning rods. And so sometimes I say things that you don't like and that might just be true, I said something wrong. Sometimes I may say something good and you don't like it. And it can just be, you're mad at me. And so anything something happens, you can a- accuse me or another elder because you're mad at that person. So it's like, no, no, we're, gonna, we're not gonna let that happen. And I'm just gonna let wild accusation be thrown to dismiss leaders or not guess our culture, cancel them immediately, right? But here you go, other elders in the room, Rick and Lucas. <laughs> Publicly rebuke those who sin. <laughs> I had I more, more of a somber moment, uh, mood in mind, uh, tone in my mind, but, but yeah. If we publicly rebuke (laughs) Pastor Rick, someone might be laughing. Publicly rebuke those who sin. Verse 20 is Publicly rebuke those who sin, so that the rest will be afraid so the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share, don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So that's number one, how do you correct elders, right? That's very helpful, but clear, direct instruction. Number two, I'm fired up. Which tower can I tear down? Is that up there? All right. I'm going to come back. I thought that was funny. Uh, let me say it again because we're not here. Here we go. If I, I'm fired up, which tower can I be, tear down? Right? Kind of like that James and John, Sons of Zebedee. You're like, hey, I read Elijah and fire. Jesus, which, which, uh, which uh, city you want us to uh, burn, pull fire down from and burn? Hmm? It's Kind of the same idea. Well, here you go. 2 Corinthians 10 says this. Since the New Testament tells us, hey, your, your, your enemies aren't flesh and blood. Your enemies aren't humans. So things, that, that's it. Can't think of this like that. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So our, the, our enemies are not of the flesh, and now there are our weapons. But are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, the tearing down of towers. We demolish demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. What I'm saying is you have weapons that destroy strongholds, uh, strongholds or fortresses that God has equipped you to tear down towers but I think the question we have to answer is, what are those towers? Well, they are the arguments or speculations by, by which Paul means the thoughts, plans, and intentions designed to justify one's callous disbelief in God. So the arguments or speculations to justify your callous disbelief in God. And so what he's saying here is that our weapons, D.R. Carson points it this way, our weapons destroy the way people think, demolish their sinful thought patterns, the mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. So, so just picture with you, we have towers in our minds that need to be torn down. They're not refuges of a city, but they're refuges of disbelief, refuges of our life before Christ, Things don't just go away when you get saved, when you meet Jesus. There's still things to be worked out, things that need to be rethought, destroyed. And then he says, our weapons are effective in bringing down every proud thing or lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. That, that could be every pretension that sets itself up against the kingdom of God. And so we, th- we might think about that as the, the, uh, the person who's like an intellectual independent who's very cynical on everything, just pushes back. But some of us do that intellectual doubt just to keep God at arm's distance. We wanna keep asking these questions about God and want him to answer our questions so really we can keep him away from us, away from really invading our space, our life, our heart. But we've been equipped by God to overcome every arrogant claim, every prideful thought, Every pompous act that forms a barrier to the knowledge of God. The ultimate aim is what? To take every thought captive to obey Christ. The Carson, again, he says, the picture is of a military expedition into enemy territory. An expedition so effective that every plan of the enemy is thwarted, every scheme foiled, every counter-offensive beaten. whatever is hindering us from repentance, is hindering us from enjoying Jesus, whatever is still stuck in us, those thoughts, those lofty opinions. In Saint Corinthians 10, this is to believers. This isn't initially, immediately, go and to your non-Christians and do this to them and tear down their towers. He's saying, no, you in the family of faith, tear down the towers that are in your own mind. Do this with one another, you have Jesus. <laughs> We have his spirit, we have his truth, we have his people, that are the weapons we have been given to tear down every speculation, everything that justifies callous, the disbelief in God. Someone defined a stronghold as this, a stronghold, as a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept I should have wrote this down. Say it again. A mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept as unchangeable something we know is contrary to God's will. So it's those things, those negative patterns of thought that cripple our ability to obey God and, and therefore breed feelings of guilt and despair. One author says the critical thrust of the passes, passage is against Christological heresy, meaning any, anything in your mind, any tower in your mind that wars against Jesus being fully God and fully man and all of the implications of that in your life and heart, tear it down. Aggressively. Violently, not angrily. But you hear me? Aggressively, with force. It's not something to play around with. This is an enemy tower in your mind trying to take residence in God's territory. Tear it down. All right, let's go to verse 18. He asked Ziba and Zamana, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? They were like you, they said, each resembled the son of a king. So he said, they were my brothers, the son of my mother. Now we find out what's been fueling him for a bit. Bloody vengeance. We didn't know this up to this point. But these kings have killed his brothers As the Lord lives, he says, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Then he said to Jether, Jether, his firstborn, get up and kill them. The youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. The two kings said, get up and strike us down yourself, for a man is judged by his strength. So Gideon got up, killed Zeba and Zabana, and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. What's sad here is that Jether is is very much like Gideon early on, but now Gideon has grown for a hunger for violence. you've got this young fearful boy like Gideon was in the wine press, and now he's commanding his son, this young boy, to kill his enemies. And in in the Bible, God lets us know the the boy's young and afraid, he's not up to it. And so Gideon kills him. Verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon now, in response to this, in response to the initial fight with the 300 men to then chasing these men down, rule over us, you, your son, your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request. (laughs) Uh, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting ornaments, the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made the gold, it's an ephod, which he placed in Orpha, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian (coughs) was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, that is Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. Oh, I I got excited again with Gideon, right? That initial response. He's like, no, I'm not going to rule over you. And you're like, yeah. He's like, no, the Lord will rule over you. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, give me all your rings. I'm like, oh, what happened, Gideon? Because verbally he denies kingship. Verbally he states the Lord will rule over you, but he acts like a typical Canaanite king. He asks for and receives tribute. He sets up that Lord and vassal dynamic. This is a symbol of their submission to him. The mount of gold adds up to a royal treasure. It's 43 pounds of gold. And then he even takes the king's swag, the ornaments, the pendants, the purple garments, even the camels bling, right? And then he lastly assumes the king's role because what what does he do? He's the sponsor of a new cult. He crafts and sets up a golden ephod in his city, Orpha. Here's the point. It's possible to say God is the king and live like you're the king. It's possible. It's very possible to say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and not live like that at all and live as if you're the king. With your words, say the right things. But with your motives and actions, live the opposite. Adhere to creeds, but not holiness. Agree to truth, but not truthfulness. God has made Gideon the new Moses in chapter six, right? If you don't remember, that's the same interaction that God had with Moses, he has with Gideon. And you're like, oh, this is the new Moses. But now here, Gideon makes himself the new Aaron taking everyone's gold and making an idol. Where God moved this Gideon from a fearful boy to a valiant warrior, then Gideon in self-delusion moves himself from warrior to king to doing what is right in his own eyes and then leading everyone to do the same. The deliverer delivers them from the Midianites, but then quickly as and immediately leads them into idolatry. This is the first of judges. Usually peace meant that that they don't bow down to other gods for a certain amount of time. But no, he he pushes back the Midianite oppressors, pushes back the false gods of the Mionites, but then says, uh, let's worship something else immediately. And you're like, well it's an ephod. Give him a break, Ryan. Yeah, it's an ephod. As in something created by God in the Old Testament for the help of them making decisions from the Lord. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but it it would help them with yes, no decisions, direction of what, what is the Lord directing them for. But you know, just like the calf, you know, just like the golden cow, you know that it's not just... The, not worshiping God. It's got to be worshiping God and God alone on his terms. Not worshiping God and other gods. Not worshiping other gods and not him at all. It's not worshiping him through how we want to worship him. Because what do we do? We love to feel safe with an image in front of us to make us feel like our God is very present and we're in control of him. So we make cows, we make ephods that are representations maybe. You, you can say, hey, Ryan, give a break. It's a representation of God. Yeah, but they're, they're worshiping it, not God. That's why he says, don't make any image. Don't make any graven image for me. Nothing represents me. Nothing can represent me. Deuteronomy 17 lays this out before Gideon ever comes on the scene. God had a plan and made provision for a king. In Deuteronomy 17, God has rules. And this is what he says. When you enter the land, the Lord your God has given you. Take possession of it. Live in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king, the Lord, your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You're not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. Makes sense of Solomon, right? He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Hmm, It's 43 pounds. Sounds like a lot to me. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It is to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. To observe all the words of this instruction and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from the command to the right or left, and he and his sons will continue reigning many years in Israel. So rather than submitting to God's rules for a king, Gideon takes it into his own hand, acts like a king. And I think in the, the wealth that we live in and the general success that we may experience, I'll say this. After God blesses you for joining his mission, don't follow the blessings, but keep following him. Don't worship success after you've got some success because Jesus gave you the success. Keep worshiping Jesus, the giver, not the gift. Don't serve money. Serve Jesus. Don't make disciples of materialism. Make disciples of the master. Don't boast in your accomplishments. Boast in his grace to you. Don't, don't find your identity in your new role, whatever that may be, but in his unceasing love for you. Let that be your identity. And while I read Deuteronomy 17 and feel <laughs> the grief with looking at Gideon, I then turn quickly and think, huh, what is Gideon supposed to do for me? What is the Spirit trying to do with Gideon me? It's to point me again to I need a leader, but I can't have a merely human leader. Meaning, it, c- it can't be me. I need someone who can really rescue and deliver. I I I need God's chosen king. Gideon sets me up to just long and yearn for a real, righteous, loving, gracious, protecting king. And then Jesus shows up, has every right to demand service as a king but doesn't come to serve, but to be, to not, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't pass the buck to someone else. He didn't look to Jether. He defeated our enemies through death and resurrection. He ransomed us from our love of blessings and success. He rescued us from the despair and hopelessness and self-loathing loathing over our failures. He used his power not to whip the Roman occupation, but used his power to endure whips by Roman occupation. He used his power not to tear down towers and to destroy people's refuges, but he tore down the veil into two parts so that the Lord God would be your refuge. Opening us to the dam, opening us to God blowing up the dam to God so that we actually have a straight way to the Father. So this Gideon, meaning Jesus, is a true contender. Jeroboam means against the belt, contending against, and Jesus, the one who contends against all of our enemies and wins and says, come one, come all. Don't, Don't worship some gold formed into an image, but worship the image of God. Jesus, not a representation, but God Himself. Father, I, I ask for that. I just ask for you to chip away, turn our hearts, expose the false ideas and that we would have the trajectory of your disciples not of Gideon of a strong start and a terrible finish but Lord would we grow more humble more loving more into the image that we worship more into Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.